0: Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team with another installment of our energy transition podcast series, where we're now focusing on small modular and advanced nuclear reactors. In today's episode, we host Chris Colbert, who is the CFO of New Scale Power. New scales our third SMR developer to join the podcast, the others being TerraPower and X Energy. NewScale is interesting because they're using a light water reactor, which is the same technology that's been in conventional reactors for decades. So very familiar technology. Technology With a well established fuel supply, but packaged in a very different manner. They're also the first SMR with NRC design certification. In the discussion, we cover the history of New Scale going back to their origins in the early 2000s, the differences in the New Scale SMR with other next gen designs, particularly as it relates to producing electricity, industrial heat, and clean hydrogen. Chris mentions in his words how the phone has been ringing off the hook after the Inflation Reduction Act. We also discussed the involvement with Floor, who's a major investor in NewScale, and their eventual plan to wind down ownership. So sit back and enjoy as we spend some time learning more about NewScale. All right, Chris, thanks so much for being here. To kick us off, could you start with a little background on yourself what brought you to New Scale and set the table for what New Scale is all about?
1: So, you know, background for me, I graduated from MIT with a bachelor's in electrical engineering. Did five years at GE. Uh, worked in the corporate staff. Went and got an MBA from Cal Berkeley. Came out of there and then spent about twenty years in independent power project development and financing. You know, so large and large um, fossil plants, coal, and natural gas, and came to the nuclear world in 2007, in part to um, assist in the deployment of large reactors, leveraging the provisions in the Energy Policy Act that was passed in 2005. I did that for a company called Unistar. It was a joint venture between Constellation and EDF. Uh, did that for about four years and then came over to uh, Small Module Reactors in 2011, joining NuScale as a Chief Operating Officer, uh, did that role for three years, became the Chief Strategy Officer, did that role for about five years, and then in 2021, um, moved over to be the Chief Financial Officer for Newscale um, at that time. And really what you know has really driven me you know throughout my career is just you know the belief that energy is a, a great enabler of a modern lifestyle that allows people to realize their full potential and you know always doing it with the goal of doing it you know more affordably, uh, safer, cleaner you know with each iteration that that we do which is really kind of what led me to new scale in the end you know the brief stint with large reactors really kind of an eye-opener just you know from the perspective of the technology realize that those large stick-built reactors on site were going to be very difficult to implement uh, in the united states given their complexity their cost and the time it would take to get them Um, into fruition. And I saw the small module reactors as really providing, you know, a solution that was better um, adapted for, you know, the U.S. market, but also many markets overseas where you just can't put a large reactor. Um, so for all those reasons, I came over uh, to New Scale back at that time frame and, you know, since then in part of a very exciting uh, period of, you know, accomplishment uh, by New Scale, including the design certification or actually the design approval we received in September of 2020, the design certification, which is slated to be issued in November of this year. And everything else that we've done uh, in the interim of maturing the product and being able to, at the end of this um, decade, to deploy a new scale plant for our first customer the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems on the Idaho National Laboratory site uh, in Idaho. So that's been a uh, sort of short uh, run over through of me. Um, a little yeah. bit about the company and I'm happy to go on to your next questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So maybe um maybe just a little more on the background of the company. So just, just the the history of the company, how the time it took to, to, to get to the point that you're at now, the capital that's been invested. I know there's a significant amount of capital that went towards the development and also licensing approval that you've gotten to this far along. And then talk about the involvement with Floor because Floor is a significant investor that still holds a large stake in, in the company.
1: Yeah. So you know, New Scale was formed in 2007 uh, by our co-founder and chief technology officer, Dr. Jose Reyes. It grew out of technology that was originally funded by the Department of Energy going back to 2000. From that, sprung forth the company, had three patents. Uh, Dr. Reyes had maybe a handful of employees at the time and really grew that into an entity that, as we mentioned, received their design approval in 20, invested about $1.4 billion dollars, um, that funding coming from a mix of floor at about 600 million, the U.S. government at 500 million, other investors at about 300 million dollars. 500 plus employees now, over 600 patents uh, pending or approved, and a lot of work done to make sure that you know everything that goes into the new scale uh, power module and a new scale plant is readily available from the marketplace, preferably domestically out of the U.S., but if not, from you know friendly countries like Japan and Korea. To make sure that we can deploy on time, uh, new scale Voyager plants for us. So you know, a very exciting period. And as you noted, we came public in May, uh, which is really the final way that we went out to raise the capital to complete what we call a commercialization. Uh, but where we expect by 2024 to be, you know, cash flow positive. You know, after spending another 200 million dollars. So lots of. Uh, cushion on what we raised, and the ability to, um, you know, move the product forward, and, and you know, with need to go back out to the market for additional capital raise.
0: Yeah, I, I'm curious about that decision because I'm sure you guys were considering all options, and and maybe there was a private capital option that that was on the table. And just, curious how you ultimately decided on on. Choosing to be a public company because one of the questions we get is, well, you know, here's this public company, but free cash flow in 2024 and significant revenues. You know, maybe a few years after that, like, is the timing too soon? So, how did you guys kind of settle on the decision to to come public versus other alternatives?
1: Yeah, so we had a number of successful private capital raises over the years. With that 1.4 billion dollars invested, all that was from private raises or from DOE cost share. Uh, but what we found in the last round of the private capital raise, which you know we raised one hundred ninety-two million dollars in July of twenty twenty-one, uh, was our intent to do a SPAC merger. Really facilitated those folks who had you know really the question about where was the liquidity going to come from and a commitment to um, going public at some point in time. So providing that pathway was really mutually reinforcing. Is that? as we you know, discussed the intentionality to do a merger, uh, the amount of interest in that last round of private capital increased dramatically. And in fact, not only funded $192 million, but of the pipe uh, that went into the SPAC merger. And we did have a goal for that final capital raise in the SPAC merger was to fund You know, we saw is about $200 million of need in 22 and 23 and part of 2024 uh, to get us to that free cash flow standpoint. And, you know, we were very successful. We raised net about $340 million. So I think it provided, you know, a number of advantages uh, to us. But, you know, sitting here as the chief financial officer for a company that has the funding it needs to be successful is a great position to be in. And, you know, it was a combination of both the private and the intention to do the the SPAC merger that, that made all that possible.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the floor stake? So, you know, they're a 60 percent holder right now, and they have said publicly that they want to get that down to a minority stake, which they've classified as 20 to 30 percent. Obviously, it's a decision that that's up to them around timing and, and what that looks like. But curious how you guys are responding to that. I, I suspect it's a regular question from investors asking you guys, you know, what do you think about how this thing plays out? As you
1: noted, that was should have been no surprise because Floor has always been very clear about what their intent has been uh, in terms of the, their holding for, for New Scale. But you know, Floor has been, you know, a very patient investor. And I expect them to be patient as they look at ways of monetizing the investment that they made uh, over the last, you know, 10 years really in New Scale. that uh, they'll do it in a way that's mindful, you know, both for what the company needs, uh, their fellow shareholders, but you know, quite honestly, just maintaining the value that they have. So, you know, I don't, you know, know exactly what Floor is going to do. I've read public statements that you've seen earlier in your question. But, you know, things have gone very well uh, with all our partners, not just Floor, but the other strategic partners we have, where they're all very vested in interest and interested in the new scale of success because of the opportunity to represent to their core businesses, whether it's doing EPC work, building Voyager plants supplying the pieces and part that New Newscales needs or providing plants they need to power their societies with affordable, secure uh, carbon free energy. So for all those reasons, uh, we see that with not just floor who does happen to be you know the largest of our strategics, but it's not the only one. and you know we think that people are pretty you know sensible in how they look at things and you know nobody's in a rush, right? I mean people are looking to do it in a way that makes sense for them. And uh, we expect that to be how not just floor, but you know any other similarly situated investor is, is thinking about it.
0: Let's switch over to talk about the reactor technology for a bit. So you're using light water, which is the same thing that's been used in the conventional reactors for decades, uh, but you've obviously got a different design. And then there's these other small modular and advanced reactor designs that are using different fuels and different coolants. So maybe you could co- kind of compare the new scale design to the conventional fleet. And then what else is out there on the, the small and advanced reactor side?
1: Yeah, so I'm talking about similarities let's talk first about the large light water reactor designs that are out there. You know, the similarities are we're using the same technologies, materials, fuels that go into those designs. We're leveraging 50 years of operating experience and a supply chain to make all those things. So we don't have to invest in manufacturing facilities that exist because they exist for the large reactors. Where we differentiate from the large reactors is that we've greatly simplified the design, uh, by eliminating about two thirds of the components that you find on a large reactor and making it smaller so that we can build the whole of the new scale power module, which includes the reactor nuclear steam supply system and containment in a factory so that you have that all done in the factory setting. And then once the site is ready, you just ship you know, by rail truck or barge or a combination of those things, the new scale power modules to the site, install them in their operating bays and you're producing power. And that allows you to get the economies of, you know, uh, replication, doing it in a factory in a controlled environment, as well as shortening the amount of time that you're in the field with the workforce, um, you know, from maybe five to six years for a large reactor to three years for our design. And limiting the number of people you have to site from, say, 8,000 to 9,000 for a large reactor uh, deploy- deployment to maybe 1,300 folks for a new scale deployment. So those are all the things that we see, you know, both. You know, advantages, leveraging what's been done before, and differentiators, the large light water reactor designs. Uh, when it comes to the small light water reactor designs, really are, you know, we think that there's going to be a need for all the designs. Um, we just think that we're further along because we have the approval from the um, the NRC uh, that we received in 2020, uh, you know, from them. So it's really just the timing, but, you know, truth be told, you know, the demand that we see for carbon-free energy resources is just so, so huge that no one company and no one technology is going to be able to meet it. But we do want to be first. You know, we want to get out there. We want to kind of set the shape of the space out there. But you know, having said that, you know, we fully expect that you know other people are going to be successful. And, and in fact, we do want to see other people be successful um, out there because it proves the case that you know it's not just a one-trick pony. It's a vibrant industry. You know, it's nice being alone out there as the sole pure play, but. You know, ultimately, we'd like to see others in the space um, as well. Compared yep. to other designs, just finally, the, the round rounded out, there's non-light water reactor designs. And, you know, not only do we sort of see the advantage in terms of having our NRC approval, but, you know, those designs are going to need to prove to the NRC and to customers that they have access to the fuel types, the fuel forms, uh, the materials, the technologies that they will need for those technologies to work. Not that I expect that they wouldn't work, but it's a really, you know, you have to go through the rigor of doing that. And if we spent a billion for uh, doing that for a light water reactor design, then they're going to have to do something comparable to get to the same level of comfort uh, for their design and probably have a little bit of a higher hurdle. And just that, you know, people will not have been operating, um, their particular non light water reactor designs for the, you know, 50 years or so that has been going on in the commercial fleet, you know, globally, not just the U.S., but globally over hundreds of reactors. So, those are the kinds of the things that we see as, you know, comparables, advantages, um, deltas, but, you know, all in all, uh, we expect there to be, you know, very strong demand, and we think that, you know, if we can do what we say we're going to do, not only new scale, but our, our peers, we're all going to be very successful.
0: Yeah, and and I want to come back to the to the licensing in a bit, but just on the the differences with some of these advanced reactor designs. So one thing that sticks out to me is just the the level of heat that's generated. You know, I think you guys, I assume you'd be similar to conventional light water reactors, which are running around three hundred C, and some of these other designs are five hundred or eight hundred Celsius, and that might be pretty well suited for an industrial application. Does the heat output of your reactor limit? some of the applications that you could be addressing or, or how are you guys thinking about, you know, the sweet spot in the market for for your technology?
1: Yeah, so really two comments on that. You know, one, when you look at producing steam, most of the energy is, is taken up converting from water to steam and then increasing the steam temperature um, we used to use resistive heaters. And it's not a huge tax on the overall plant output. So it's not as much of a stretch as, as you would think it would. Second is in some of the applications, what we found in hydrogen production is one of them um, using um, solid oxide electrolytic uh, converters or, or cells. That process is pretty exothermic. Um, So you can recapture that energy and put it back into raising the temperature of our steam so that you really don't even need to use resistive heaters to increase the temperature of our steam. So a process that was originally thought like, ah, might not work, what we're finding is that it works. It's just a question of, you know, how much additional heat do you need to provide to that steam to bring it up to the temperature that people are looking for? But generally speaking, we haven't found it to be you know, a real hindrance or obstacle to the, you know, at least what we see is the economics, because generally the economics are a comparison to doing it with natural gas through other, you know, other processes. And once you look at what natural gas prices are today and then factor in the potential for carbon taxes on it, at least in this country, or limitations on it, you know, you start seeing that break-even coming in um into play. But that's how we've been seeing it from our standpoint. So you know we've been relatively surprised by the fact that as we've done the studies you know it turns out it's not the hindrance that you know many people thought including ourselves thought initially it was going to be
0: okay great well maybe you could talk a little bit more about the timeline for commercial operation just what are those key milestones between now and i guess you know towards the end of this decade how are you seeing that if it's any different in the us versus some of the other international markets that you guys are pursuing
1: you know we believe we're on a timeline as new scale to deliver our new scale power modules that's the hardware that we provide Uh, we could start delivering those in 2027 if a customer wanted them and that's just going through the continuation of the program we have to mature the design work with our vendors and put out orders to make that happen. Now, they want the megawatts on the grid in 2029. Uh, that's UAMPS uh, for their carbon-free power project. And they're going down a process now of you know maturing the design and putting together the license application so that they can apply to the NRC uh, in January of 2024 and then be in construction in 2026 and have the first module operating in 29 and the rest of them, which would be a six module plan in 2030. Uh, If people wanted to accelerate that, you know, clearly, you know, they need to start moving now because that's when UAMPS is going to start moving. But, you know, there really is, you know, some opportunity to, you know, accelerate maybe the timeline, but I think there's even a better opportunity to, you know, increase the number that are being um, deployed, you know, in the early years. Right now, it's relatively modest for us. You know, we start at 16, then 19, then 35, and I think it's 63, and then, you know, increasing number of modules per year, going into operations starting from 2029. But, you know, you could actually accelerate some of that so you could have more. And we are seeing an interest in that from other countries where, you know, particularly overseas, you know, people were thinking, oh, maybe mid-30s. Um, And even in this country, they're now saying overseas, like, well, gee, given, you know, the issues with uh, Russia invading Ukraine and the desire to have energy security and clean energy, I'm looking now at 2029, 2030. You know, that's our sort of customers in Romania, Poland um, standpoint. And in the U.S. with the passage of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, the potential is to have 30 to 50 percent off the cost of an installed plant. Uh, which is a huge incentive by way of an investment tax credit. But it is limited in duration where, you know, you have to have the plan operational by the later of 2032 or the U.S., you know, getting down to 75 percent decarbonization, um, you know, one of those two dates. So you could see that pulling dates forward in the U.S. Um, I think people are still digesting the Inflation Reduction Act and what that means for them in terms of planning. But I think over the next year, we'll see that, you know, really kind of turn the corner. And, you know, that's not too surprising when I think about it. You know, I came into the industry initially on the strength of the incentives that were in the 2005 Energy Policy Act. I didn't get into the industry until 2007. And that's where things started to really take off to start moving forward uh, into deployments, which, you know, at one point, uh, there were some 32 license applications, I believe, in front of the NRC. Now, you know, only two of them went forward and only one of them is going to completion. That's the Vogel plant. But that's the, you know, sort of timing and how things have played out historically. So I, I see it being kind of the same way, you know, this time around
0: as well. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting parallel to to, draw, to go back to the 05, 07. Can you talk a little bit more about the supply chain and how you're going to be delivering the modules. So you're not going to be doing any manufacturing, but you have these supply chain partners. Uh, you're working with Floor on, on project development. Can you just kind of walk through how all that works? What what's Floor's involvement? What are the supply chain partners doing and and just how does all that fit together?
1: Yeah. So you know when you look at a, a Voyager plant and just take for an example a, a Voyager six um, or 12 module plant. You know, in 2020 dollar pricing, overnight capital costs, the scope's about $3.3 billion in total. About a third of that is new scales. Uh, The other two thirds is floors. All our stuff is being predominantly done in a factory. Um, And then we come in and install, commission, test, and turn over the modules to the customer um, once floor or whoever the customer has chosen has completed building uh, the facilities on the plant site. Um, So that's how the kind of scope splits up. Now, with respect to new scale, um, you're right. We're not building or manufacturing anything because, frankly, those facilities um, already exist. Uh, you know, I alluded to sort of 20, you know, 2005 when EPACT was passed. You know, you had a lot of companies investing in their manufacturing capabilities for those 32 applications that were going forward in the U.S. Now, that didn't come to fruition, but that capacity has not gone away. And so we're able to use um, that capability of folks, which you know include Dusan, IHI, BWX Technologies, other companies, um, you know, to do the manufacturing of the pressure vessels, provision of the valves, um, control rod drive mechanisms, you know, in all probably about 85 procurement packages. That go into a new scale module. That we just provide the procurement specs and we provide the integration spec to you know a company like Viewson, and you know they'll do a bulk of the work and do the you know assembly and test it and then finally ship to the site. Um, you know much in the way that you know Apple does with Foxconn, right? Apple doesn't build an iPhone. They say here's what an iPhone is, and then they give that you know build the print um, and the material list or provides the parts themselves. To Foxconn to you know manufacture what needs to be manufactured, and then install, assemble, and test the iPhones, and then ship them out with the Apple logo on them. We see it being very similar uh, to that kind of a of a structure. And you know, fortunately, there's a number of places that can do that currently. But you know, if we hit the success that we want at some point, there'll be a need for uh, additional facilities. But when we talk to our supply chain, you know, we're pretty comfortable that if the order book is there, they'll make the investments to expand their uh, capacity. And it's not something that necessarily uh, New Scale would have to do.
0: What is your responsibility from a risk perspective, right? So when people think of big projects and you mentioned Vogel, right? Like there's a long history of cost overrun and and Time overrun and SMR you have is specifically designed to avoid those things. But investors still worry. Like, what if cost overrun? What if time overrun? How, how are you exposed to that, if at all, or is it all in the supply chain partners? Just explain that a little bit, if you could.
1: Yeah, so I mentioned you know sort of the one third, two third split, right, for the um, the new scale scope versus the floor scope. You know, the floor scope is the heavy civil stuff. Uh, or who the EPC partner is out in the field. So all the construction risk is you know, partitioned between the customer and their EPC provider. Um, So we're not involved in that part of it. Our responsibility is to deliver the modules per schedule and that those modules when installed will provide, you know, a certain volume of steam and a certain temperature and a certain pressure. So the performance of it in terms of the schedule of delivery of things, we're working out their supply chain so that, you know, when it comes to uh, delivery guarantees, we'll be largely back to back with those folks that will be comfortable that, you know, what we sign up to is backstop by our supply chain. Uh, When it comes to the performance, you know, clearly that's our responsibility. I mean, we designed um, it overall, but I think we feel very comfortable that, you know, given the testing we've done and the knowledge that's available and the really uh, the accuracy of the codes that are used to predict performance having been developed over, you know, 40 or 50 years and proving to be very accurate that we're going to be very comfortable um, with the margins that we have um, for performance. But, you know, that's where we'll be uh, really focused on is one, making sure we get them there on time when we say we will. And then two, once they start up, they produce the amount of steam at the temperature, pressure and quantities um, that we guarantee in the contract. But in terms of you know if somebody's having a hard time pouring concrete in the field, that's not a new skill risk.
0: Maybe you could walk through a, a typical project timeline. I think you can earn revenue up to nine years, eight or nine years ahead of commercial operation. But just sort of quickly walk us through that that timeline um, and what the revenue profile and profitability profile looks like, just so so people can kind of understand uh, what's involved.
1: Yeah. So, you know, just looking at a, you know, for example, just a project of a nine new scale power module plant, not that, you know, everything is gonna be a nine module plant, but on average, if you look at our projections, number of plants, it ends up being nine. And that's just a mix of, you know, six and 12 module plants, maybe some four module plants, but just saying it's nine Uh, for the first three to four years, we'll be providing services to a customer to assist in the design of the plant based upon the standard plant design we've invested in. But, you know, adapting that to be specific to the site, that will be in the, you know, five to 10, maybe $15 million per year, you know, 15% type margins, uh, gross margins um, on it for three to four years. And then we move into the phase where we're we're receiving, um, you know, for lack of a better term, progress payments on the new scale power modules, you know, the physical stuff that could be in a couple of hundred to $250 million a year for four years. As well as continuing services, right? So we're building the modules, we're in the factory, but we're also continuing to support the customer and you know training their people to receive, install, and operate the new scale power modules, answer any questions that the NRC might have or the regulator might have on the license application. You know, and those margins are in the kind of 20 to 25% range, you know, we're projecting. And then finally, once you get into the um, operating period, you know, in the US, the license is good for 40 years. Typically, they're re upped for at least 20 more. And, you know, we've seen a lot of people go a further 20. Um, But we'll be looking to, you know, provide services that could be anywhere from, you know, 50 to $150 million per year to a customer to assist them in. You know, uh, maintaining the plant, doing any changes to the plant, helping them in licensing, doing their reload analysis, refueling, assisting in the refueling. And that range really will vary depending upon the sophistication of the customer. If it's somebody who, you know, doesn't have a fleet of, you know, has never operated a plant before and doesn't have any other reactor operations, they'll be using a lot more services. If it's somebody like uh, Constellation who has a large existing fleet, um, they'll be using less but again we see those margins being in the kind of 25 or 20 to 30 percent you know range and you know as you can expect you know the mix of those services versus the the modules um, is very heavily weighted towards the modules early on but once we get an installed base let's say 100 plants uh, by the mid 30s that service revenue is going to be pretty substantial you know, it'll be on the same order of magnitude as the the module's part of it and carry on for a very long period
0: of time. Okay, super. Talk to us about the financial plan here. Free cash flow positive in, in 2024. You've got about 350 million of cash at the end of second quarter. So how much how much cash do you expect to use between now and becoming free cash positive? And what are the major requirements to kind of getting to that that free cash flow positive level?
1: Yeah, so, you know, our projections were based upon what we saw was needed to get through uh, the remaining licensing and technology maturation, including proof of, you know, um, design prototyping that we have uh, underway between the year and next and a little bit in 2024. You know, second is, you know, we we sort of saw that um, net of the margins or the cash we expect to generate from customers to be around 200 million dollars but you know the the that sort of presupposes one that our costs come in where we say they are to complete those things and two get the customer uptake the revenues and the margins associated with it which we've you know projected and you know averaged out but meeting those uh, requirements so really it comes down to you know customers 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 You know, this year we have five objectives. Three are in our control, mostly. Uh, That's complete the reactor building design, the standard plant design, and submitted the standard design approval. Uh, The other two are less in our control. That's, you know, our first customer placing an order for the long-lead materials for the new scale power modules by the end of this year and getting a second customer to come on uh, to be pursuing um, both the licensing and the design for a plant at their particular site. Um, by the end of this year and then getting three more next year, five the following year, seven the following year. But if you just look at what the you know sort of averaged uh, revenues you are and you layer those across each other, that drives what our revenues would be that become fairly substantial from a you know cash flow perspective, you know, turning the corner in 2024 and becoming substantial in 26. Um, but you'll start seeing that work its way through, you know, starting next year. I mean this year, You know, you've been hitting sort of the targets we have, but they're not huge. Uh, It's really in 23 and 24, you you start seeing the proof of, you know, show me um, in our actual results that I think people can, you know, start getting confidence in that, okay, yeah, this looks like to be, you know, consistent with the story that, you know, they've put forward in terms of um, uh, the overall business model. Um, for them going forward,
0: what does the customer funnel look like? So, if you're going to have, you know, one later this year, three next year, five the following year, I think that's what you said. Like, how many, how many hot prospects do you have? And, you know, I'm assuming that you got more than three for next year. Like, what, what is, what does that funnel look like, and how are they moving through the various stages of, of certainty?
1: Early on, it was just we were about like filling up the funnel and demonstrating the interest out there, which. You know, resulted in the number of memorandums of understanding, which, you know, are not binding, but generally include as an appendix what a work program would look like to move people down that curve. Um, now our focus is really getting contracts that show customer commitments to spending money to do those things for the design and licensing of a Voyager plant and their their jurisdiction. Um, So we're still comfortable comfortable with the the funnel we have in terms of doing it, but, you know, really it's going to be about, you know, what is being seen out there publicly you can view, you know, so it's no secret where UAMPS is. They report, you know, their progress monthly on their website, um, what they're doing, what's going on. Uh, There's been a number of announcements from, you know, Romania's uh, Society of Electrica on uh, their progress and their engagement with the regulator same is true for KGHM, um, which is a Poland uh, metal refining company um, moving forward. And then you know there'll be additional um, pronouncements by people you know as they start moving you know further along from what we call you know or into what we call a class one customer uh, category um, moving forward. So right now we still remain you know comfortable with what you know we need to do. Um, but, you know, let's be clear, right, we had a um, objectives of just getting one more this year, then three next year, then, you know, five the following then seven then nine. And, you know, I expect that to be um, achievable. We certainly have, you know, tailwinds going for us. I mean, I can't tell you how the phone's been ringing off the hook since the Inflation Reduction Act um, uh, passed. As people scramble to say, okay, you know, give me the information so I can start plugging in your technology into my, you know, um, integrated resource plan so I can start having a conversation about converting my old coal plants to, say, you know, new scale small molecule reactors or, you know, other people's as well. So I I think we'll see more activity uh, in this than not. And I think you're seeing the beginnings of that. You know, I just point to uh, Dominion. You know, has it in their IRP. Uh, Governor Youngkin in Virginia talked about a plan that has, you know, contemplation of a SMR in southwest or central Virginia uh, going to operation, I think, in 2030 or 2031. I think we're going to see more of those opportunities being made public um, and people really going after them, uh, particularly next year. You know, one of the questions I get from, from folks is like, you know, gee, with the IRA providing such an incentive to go forward, why why isn't your order book, you know, over the top? And my answer is that, you know, people weren't really expecting the IRA, you know, this year to come through as it has. And so there's always a little bit of a lull uh, as people really digest, you know, what it means, get their planning and get their approvals in place to start moving out on these things um, but I think 2023 is the year where you'll see more of that happening and you know it's a fair question for you know uh, to the extent you're following utilities just asking them you know what are their plans uh, to take advantage of the IRA I
0: have a couple NRC questions first is it relates to part 52 versus part 50 approval you're going the part 52 route can you explain what that is and what advantage it provides and and then the second question is, On the emergency planning zone or EPZ. I think you're waiting on a decision around that. Could you walk through what that's all about and what it could mean?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Part 52 um, was a a provision under the regulations that was promulgated in response to the deficiencies that people perceive with Part 50. And, you know, Part 50 is a process by which you apply for and get a construction permit allowing you to build a plant, a nuclear plant. But before you can Load a nuclear fuel into it. You have to procure an operating license, and you know the history in the U.S. is that it was very prone to interventions uh, from a legal standpoint, which greatly delayed a large number of projects, and um, you know driving large cost overruns and cancellations in some cases. So Part 52 was driven to provide a process of greater um, certainty and you know that's what we've done as New Scale, and you know what UAMPS is proposing to do you know we receive the standard design approval we'll have a design certification rule uh, and then ultimately we'll get a uh, another standard design approval for um, the size plant that you know UAMPS is going to build but then they can reference it and when they make their application for combined license approval they get not only their construction permit, but they get their operating license um, at the same time. So it greatly de-risks the project for the the plant owner. And so, you know, when we started this process off, there was nobody who was interested in doing a part 50 um, process. You know, that may have changed with some folks, but we see it just as a huge de-risking in response to what happened in the past. And, you know, maybe that's not needed for folks going forward, but you know, that's the path we've gone down and, you know, clearly, you know, it it um, it's de-risked the project from a licensing standpoint. Uh, certainly give people comfort of making the investment and in moving forward.
0: And, and then on EPZ? Yeah, so
1: on EPZ, um, you know, interestingly, you know, we provided information for the uh, TVA's early site permit application at Clinch River and, and the findings of the NRC at the time staff were that, you know, if you had a design of the new scale type, then, you know, a site boundary emergency planning zone, i.e. one that ends at the site boundary of the plant footprint, which might be, you know, 34 acres or 50 acres, depending upon where you are and what you're doing, um, was possible. Um, In addition, we also put forward uh, a rulemaking or a um, safety evaluation report or a safety analysis report that said, here's a methodology to evaluate um, for it and you know the NRC staff has been going through a process to you know finalize their review um, which ended up in a, uh, a meeting uh, by the advisory committee on reactor safeguards earlier this month to review it um, during that meeting they were very positive on what the staff had done in terms of recommending approval of um, that, that SCR and you know there's a process by which the NRC staff should finalize it and then issue it. And then we'll have, you know, a a basis for all future customers to, you know, in their application, make the case for a a site boundary emergency planning zone um, going forward, which is greatly beneficial, right? I mean, it it means basically that, you know, I call it kind of the good neighbor um, approach where you put the plant down and you're not impacting upon people um, by way of, you know, introducing the need to do emergency planning, evacuation drills, sirens, all that ilk of thing. Um, You're limiting it to your site, which is greatly beneficial to, you know, towns that may have grown up around a site that could be a coal plant site um, or other applications such as clean hydrogen production or clean chemical plants that need to be next to your plant. Um, They can be and know that we're not gonna impact upon their operation. So we think it's very important. And again, we're just the first one to get through that process, Um, but we'll be through it and others will need to do, you know, uh, a similar application to show how they've done it because even though we started off with wanting to make the rule, you know, generic and and not specific to the new scale design, after a lot of interaction with the um, NRC staff, you know, the the safety evaluation report. Will be specific as to the new scale design, so it just you know means there will be a, a higher burden for people to meet to achieve the same result. Not that they can't, but you know, really just um, a little bit more work that's going to be required and time to do so.
0: Great. We're just about at the end of time here. I just want to wrap it up with a kind of a final high-level question. I mean, you you've had a Pretty interesting interaction with investors kind of going through the pre-SPAC merger process and then coming public and dealing with probably a, a different set of investors. And over time, people have maybe ramped up and become more knowledgeable, or or maybe you're seeing new people. I'm just kind of curious how the investor conversation has evolved over that time. And, you know, where do you think the biggest sort of holes in knowledge still exist when, when you're having those conversations?
1: And one of the things we've been doing as an industry, and, and this goes back to, you know, my coming to uh, large nuclear in 2007, but really uh, new scale in 2011 and joining a number of industry trade groups um, in 2013 and 14, when I became the chief strategy officer has been around, you know, how do we find the financing um, to, you know, get new technologies over the second value of death of, you know, commercial, commercialization that, you know, goes from the point in time of, you know, licensing by the NRC to commercial readiness. And we've been able to, you know, secure the funding and the finance and to do that. And by becoming a publicly traded company, you know, yes, we're the only one, but it's driven a lot of interest in the investor and research community as to what they're doing, um, you know, over the last six months, I've probably done 120, 130, you know, calls, uh, podcasts, conferences, telling the new scale story, and and really saying, you know, how that could be very similar for a number of our peers um, moving forward. And I know a number of our peers are out there you know, looking to raise capital as well. So I think it's been a very positive and improving environment for nuclear generally. And, you know, I think it's, a you know, has received a real shot or acceleration with the Inflation Reduction Act and that we're treated the same as any other clean energy technology. And we just believe that in order to achieve, you know, an affordable carbon-free system, you're gonna need a mix of resources, Um, and even though you may be divvying it up against four or five different resources, the amount of generation we're talking about is just so huge. I mean, we just need to get after it, and everybody's going to have, to the extent they're successful in doing what they say they will do in licensing and commercialization, we all should have plenty to do to keep us gainfully employed and provide good returns to our shareholders and provide great opportunities for you know, people not only in this country, but overseas to achieve, you know, the goals of a a modern lifestyle powered by clean and affordable electricity. You know, people just fail to to get that, you know, there's just huge numbers of people who have no electricity. And, you know, they need to have options that are affordable and clean and demonstrated in developed countries like the United States first so that they are comfortable adopting them themselves we're going down that path and that story is beginning to become, you know, more apparent to folks. And as long as we're successful in continuing that in the United States, um, we're going to see greater adoption overseas and greater interest from uh, investors from, you know, both the U.S. and and overseas in Europe uh, coming into this space to really fund, you know, what could be trillions of dollars of investment of you know transitioning from you know the the energy system we have today to the one that we want to have tomorrow
0: yeah super well that's uh that's a great place to leave it chris colbert cfo of new scale power thanks so much for coming on and uh we look forward to chatting again soon thanks for joining us stay tuned for the next episode of cowan insights